If you go back and look at the civilizations at the dawn of human history, uh, one of the most fascinating and often disturbing features of these ancient cultures is sacrifice. Virtually all ancient cultures practice some form of animal or human sacrifice. I say virtually all because it does seem that sacrifice is more prevalent and it's considered more important the more organized and settled life becomes. And there do seem to have been some tribal peoples, small size, uh, hunters and gatherers, who did not leave us evidence of having a sacrificial system. And perhaps this is because they weren't organized enough. This raises another interesting aspect of sacrifice, the connection between some form of sacrifice, or in many cases, flat-out murder, with the founding of cities. So, for example, according to the Bible, the first founder of a city was none other than Cain. He was also the first murderer and fratricide. The city of Rome was founded by Romulus, who murdered his brother Remus. Now, in many cases, as time went on, human sacrifice, uh, for good reasons, was replaced by animal sacrifice. Not only was this more humane, but in the case of the ancient Israelites, this meant that it was a way of slaughtering animals for meat in a way as to cause the least amount of pain to the animal and have the most sanitary conditions. So the sacrifice was regulated quite highly, as you probably know, by God's law in the Old Testament. One thing to know about it is it's always, uh, the flip side of it is always a banquet. There's always a a consuming of the meat that takes place after the animals offered in the temple. And this is true even in the case of a holocaust where the entire animal is burnt up on the altar. The idea is that God is consuming it in some mysterious way. It's a gift to God, and he is the one who is eating it. Uh, and again, this is symbolic, obviously, because God uh, would not uh, consume this. But the best part of the animal is always saved for God, and this is usually the fat of the animal. And in the case of when it's not a holocaust, uh, when the animal is divided up and roasted, it's di uh, distributed to the people in such way. Again, God gets the best part. But then the different parts of the animal are assigned to different parts of the community. So the priests get some part. Uh, the person made the offering gets a certain part. The poor get a certain part of the animal. And as these different cuts of meat are shared about what we see is that we have one whole animal in its integrity made up of different parts. And then in the feeding out of this, the body of this animal, the animal itself symbolizes the whole community. So I talked about the connection between sacrifice and organization of a community earlier. Uh, the animal's body is used to symbolize the different parts of the community. So just as in an animal body, including our own, uh, there are different parts that operate harmoniously to make up one individual when the animal's alive. So to a human community, such as a city, needs to function harmoniously among its parts, but uh, each person doing its own role. So we have a sacrifice and we have a banquet being continually offered to rebuild and reinforce the relationships in the city so that it functions well, so that there's peace, so that there's harmony. And this is necessitated 
in cities and other communities because we human beings have a tendency to do things that operate against the common good, that operate against our neighbors. And so we need to reestablish these relationships from time to time. Human life is marked by sin and therefore by the need for healing, by the need for reparation and atonement and forgiveness. And this all takes place in the offering of an animal to God and then the uh, consuming of the meat that goes uh, with the sacrifice. And uh, you, you think about, um, and when I was preparing my homily, I was thinking about how often we, we want banquets to be something that brings about peace. We make a big deal about them at Thanksgiving and at Christmas and so on. But we also know that those can be very fraught times when people get very upset with each other. They don't always work out for peace. There has to be some sacrificial offering that goes with it that makes atonement first. And then we celebrate the reunion uh, of the people of the community. So in the Old Testament, again, we see that there are different sacrifices for different needs. An individual believer can offer sacrifice to be forgiven of a certain sin or purified of uncleanness ritually. He can give thanks to God for a favor done or in payment of a vow, and so on. And so I come to another point. You'll, you see, when I said sacrifice was interesting, I was definitely speaking for myself. I hope you find it as interesting as I do. Once David arrives in Jerusalem and makes that the capital of the kingdom, and then Solomon, his son, builds the temple, all of the sacrifices for the Israelites need to be offered there. There are no other legal altars in the whole community. Uh, That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's the center of the community, God living at the center of the community. And that way, every single sacrifice clearly has a communal function. It's clearly connected to the Ark which is connected to all the people of the covenant. And so every time they're sacrificed, the people of Israel is rebuilt, reconstituted, set right, put at peace. So they're not magic done by individuals. You know, sometimes these days uh, animals are sacrificed in magic to get at other people, to put a, a curse on someone or something like that. This is something entirely different, okay? This is for the good of the people as a whole and to connect them with God and with each other. Now, I want to switch gears for a moment and talk about bread before we get to today's feast, but I think you can see where I'm going with this. One of the most interesting non-theological books that I've read in the past few years was called Against the Grain. It's by a historian named James C. Scott. And in it, he argues something very counterintuitive, that prehistoric civilizations, again, going back to the earliest times, uh, in order to organize themselves in big groups like empires, okay, needed something like a crop like wheat. Uh, The kings needed something like this. Why? Well, because wheat is easily regulated in terms of the ground it covers. Uh, It's very uniform. Once you uh, reap it and put it in bins, you can measure it very well. This means control of the land, control of taxation, control of the economy by a few who control the grain, right? So this means, again, there's an organizing that's going on. We might not like the way it's organized, uh, but it's necessary that there be this grain that can be made into bread. Okay. So you'll notice that I keep coming back again to the organization of cities, civilizations, and empires. But I've been talking about blood sacrifices, and now from the vantage point of grain being stored in bins and being taxed and so on. 
In the cases I've outlined, I think many of us would rightly recoil at the implication of the, the kind of barbarism that's involved in a lot of animal sacrifice and certainly human sacrifice. And we might also recoil, as did James C. Scott, against the conscription of, of labor to make the wheat crop and tax it and so on to build an empire, like the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and so on. And from this information I've given you, we might come to the conclusion we'd be better off without cities and kingdoms and empires and so on. We could go back to being hunters and gatherers. Well, there are two problems with that. The first one is that there are just too many of us now. We're too interconnected with each other that we can't just go and forage. We'd all starve, right? So we're stuck with what we've got. But there's a more significant problem, I think, from a theological vantage point, and that's this. God has clearly intended from all time that human beings should live together, that we should form a communio together. In the book of Revelation, this, it ends with the city of God coming down from heaven. That is the goal of our life, to live in that city forever. This is a city built by God descending from heaven. It's not built by human beings committing murder. So the, the deal is we need not to abolish cities, but to refound them. And similarly, with the idea of practicing sacrifice and making offerings to God, it's not to be abolished, but it's to be transformed by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Same with the growing of crops like grain, the making of bread. This is good. But like cities and like the practice of sacrifice, the economy of bread has undergone corruption in this world and needs to be purified and refounded. And God has seen to this by giving his own son to be our sacrifice for sins, the food at our banquet, the life-giving bread from heaven. This new sacrifice is the founding of a new city, the new kingdom. This is a city not ruled by fear, nor is it constituted by the continual slaughter of animals upon the altar in Jerusalem, nor is it founded on the compulsion by the ruling class of everyone else, a ruling class that controls the distribution of bread. The Eucharist reveals to us the city of man, right, the, the, the corrupt city. This is one ruled by murder and fear, compulsion, trickery, deceit, power. In other words, it's our world, the falling world. And the Eucharist does this by revealing a new world. In the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and in the institution of the Blessed Sacrament, we see a new city coming into being, the city of all the baptized who feed at Christ, a city ruled by God in love, in forgiveness, truth, compassion. In other words, the communion of saints. How blessed we are to be among those called to the Supper of the Lamb. And may we today and ever after, by partaking of this sacrifice and eating of this banquet, experience the forgiveness of our sins, experience the restoration of true communion with God and with each other and the saints in anticipation of the final satisfaction of every one of our desires in heaven. And by its conformity of taste to all palates, may the Eucharist itself illuminate our minds to see our place in the kingdom, to see each other's place in the kingdom, to see this unity being built up of a diversity of members. And may we cherish all of those who are at once united to us in the body of Christ 
and yet playing a unique role in that body. And may this new city, the city of God, be our stronghold in the spiritual battle against the many evil parodies of that city that lead many astray in our world today. And as we go forth with Christ accompanying us through the streets today, let us show forth to the world that there is a new way of life.